What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 481. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles. We tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today, after far too long of a break, we're returning to the world of Italian horror through the eye of Lamberto Bava, son of the great Mario Bava, or Mario Bava, as Edgar Wright describes him, which always makes me cringe in horror. But for this journey, I've got the great Bradley Cornish and Dan Pullen from 26 Movies from Hell, who were with us last year around this time for the Mario Bava episode. So guys, welcome back to Wrong Real. Thanks, Yay. Thanks for having What's us. Going? Yeah, this is, a, this is very exciting. And are there any, uh, uh, are Lamberto's children making films? Because we'll have to get the uh, next generation next year. That I don't know, because yeah, Lamberto's born in 44. He's old as hell, so I'm assuming he's spread his seed. <laughs> but I do not know if he's uh, produced any filmmakers or not. Spread his seed. <laughs> Absolutely, you got to spread your seeds. People will either, yeah, that's one way of people remembering that you were at some point walked the earth. But I spread my seed with my podcast every week. But for people that's out there who have not heard y'all's awesome. podcast before, tell me a little bit about Twenty Six Movies from Hell. Daniel, yeah. So Twenty Six. Like yeah, I love this stuff. 26 Movies from Hell is a podcast. Uh, what we do is uh, every week, we every two weeks now, we uh, we put out a poll with four movies, uh, beginning with a, a letter of the alphabet. And we have our friends on Twitter vote for the movie that we're going to cover. After uh, the winning picture, we will uh, focus our episode on that. And we also talk about the uh, the the losing movies. I, I hate to call them that because they're all good. Um, and we tend to focus on horror, experimental, um, and sort of lesser known, uh, weird, fucked up movies. Yeah, I've noticed that the, the options y'all throw out there, they very rarely are about like people just kind of sitting in fields and like philosophizing about the meaning <laughs> of life. They tend to be of some sort of sensationalist nature of one degree to one degree or another. <laughs> it's like they're no... Uh, there are no kind of lighthearted, soft and fuzzy flicks in the option. But I, I guess I was on y'all's D episode recently, which was a ton of fun. We got to sink our teeth into some good ones. And now, I guess last year, or your last cycle, I was on your K. So those have been a lot of fun. Mm. Yeah, I think our uh, our most family-friendly film, well, we did Xanadu, you know. But <laughs> yeah. I think right below Xanadu 
was Marquis, which was a uh, French, uh, uh, basically a French sex farce done with puppets. All right. Yeah, the, about the uh, Marquis de Sade, and there was lots of uh, there was a a talking phallus puppet. That's a that was adorable. It was adorable. <laughs> it really was. Puppet. Yeah. Speaking of the Marquis de Sade, I actually did try to crack open and read 120 Days of Sodom last year, and I was bitterly disappointed by how unerotic it is, and it's more just about trying to make the reader vomit. Like, I was expecting <laughs> just lots of, you know, bizarre and different forms of sex, but it's more like like a depraved 70-year-old who hasn't taken a bath in 20 years and has, like, eight inches of, like, shit caked onto his butt cheeks, and he's, like, making girls, like, lick it out. And I was like, this is fucking gross. I was like, I'm not yeah. getting, getting turned on at all. I was like, I want it. I want, I'm looking for erections here. I'm not looking for, you know, vomiting. But, yeah, I, so I, I gave up after about 20 pages. I, I, I felt like a total coward, but it just was not at all the erotic experience that I was looking yeah. for. Yeah. I've I've never read any Marquis de Sade, but if if the writing is anything like uh, what was featured in the the movie Marquis, where uh, he's at one point he's talking to his phallus Colin, um, and he's describing this scene where like a battering ram uh, penetrates someone's anus and rips them in half, and so that's yeah, not really my. My thing. I mean, I guess if I'm in the mood for just shock value, great. But if I'm in the mood, like when you're in that special desert island mood late at night and you're looking (laughs) to get your kicks off, I would not recommend people read Marquis de Sade. Just go to Pornhub. You'll have a lot more fun. But there actually is some sexual content in the movies we're going to be discussing tonight because Italian horror, obviously, I mean, when it comes to music and color and beautiful women and horrible violence and just style galore there's there's, it's hard to beat italian horror whether you're talking about mario bava or lucio fulci or dario argento or any of these great masters but what i've always loved about the italian film industry is how you have this incredible tradition of apprenticeship where you see people working as writer assistants or director assistants for years and whether you're talking about sergio leone or kabuchi or whomever they've got just hundreds upon hundreds of credits working on each other's movies Mm -hmm. and i just love seeing just from like the 50s through the 80s, just how rich the Italian film heritage was and how much overlap there was where you see writers who are famous for working with Fulci or now working with Liberto Bava and so on and so forth. And it just seems like such an incredible period in which to be a filmmaker in that country. But what do you all know about the period in the 70s where Mario Bava's health was starting to fade and he was starting to at least go through the motions of passing the baton to his son. Because my understanding is that Lamberto Bava got a start working as an, as an assistant on movies like Planet of the Vampires, which is obviously a precursor to Alien and things like that. So, um, Mr. Cornish, I'll let you go first. What do you know about the early days of Lamberto when he's about to begin his directing career? Well, he... God, was he born in 44? So he was about 20 when he first started working with his dad and I don't think he had any uh, credits besides working with his dad all the way up through, uh, when, well, when he got to, do you want cannibal Holocaust as well? Yes. And yeah. then he, uh, so once he got up to, uh, shock, which was kind of his, uh, first direct, directorial uh situation where he his dad was maybe like 20 percent of the film 
and his health was failing, so he took over. And a lot of people say Shock really doesn't seem like a Mario Bava film, and that's because it was mostly directed by Lamberto. But uh, so he that was seventy seven. So like I say, it depends upon been... who you're talking to. Because on Wikipedia, it says that Lamberto was allowed to shoot certain scenes, but that you know the film still credited to Mario. So I guess mm. you'd have to talk to somebody who was there to know to what degree Lamberto versus his dad was sitting in the director's chair. I I love Shock. Uh, have you seen Shock? I haven't. I've seen uh, it twice. With, yeah, I've never uh, seen da- that. No, it's uh, with uh, Daria Nicolodi. Uh, she's oh, nice. fantastic. Uh, but uh, that was. Uh, uh, so between Shock and 1964, I think he did a Western with his dad and then Planet of the Vampires. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he is 20 when he started directing. And then he did some Which work. When he started assistant directing. He wasn't, wasn't yeah, into- so it would be assistant directing. But he uh, started doing some work with uh, uh, Dario. Uh, and uh, he also worked on uh, Cannibal Holocaust. But mm-hmm. he is... His first real flick was, I think it was Macabre. Yeah, that's, yeah. The, first, that's the first one where he's got the solo directing credit. Yeah, yeah. So uh, now, did you guys get a chance to watch Macabre? Uh, I just say Macabre because I'm a, a, an arrogant snob, but I've seen Macabre <laughs> and I've seen Blade in the Dark, the, uh, the follow-up one as well. get away with it this time too but you didn't think around me little lucy did you mommy dearest you know i love you mommy everyone loves you because you're so pretty you always were the prettiest you're just trying to poison his mind against her you're jealous you want her all for yourself look young man she's no longer my wife and i'm not interested as far as i'm concerned she doesn't exist she's dead Are we allowed to spoil stuff on your show? I think anything that's more than like like older than the like most recent weekend, it's it's all fair game. As my attitude always is, if it's important to you, then get off your ass and watch it because I'm ready to talk about it. <laughs> so if you haven't seen Macabre and you're worried about a movie from 1980 being spoiled for you, then go watch it. You'll have a, you'll have a fine time, and then you can rejoin us. Well, she saved his head, and she fucks it. She fucks <laughs> his head. Yes, it, I think That's... necrophilia looms large both in shock and in macabre. It seems to be a, a recurring theme. And although on macabre, when it comes to the writing, uh, it didn't have. Um, oh, I'm blanking. What, who's the name of that? That screenwriter did like a hundred scripts, but also did a ton for Fulci, ton for Lamberto. But he wrote the two demon movies as well as. Is, it, is that uh, Sachetti? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, he he's not on Macabre, but he might as well have been because yeah, it seems like necrophilia, demons, and zombies were definitely his forte. But yeah, you had this girl mm. who quite literally is keeping her husband's head in the freezer, putting it on the bed, putting a few pillows down, and when it's time for that special Desert Island mood, you know, she turns on the music and has a drink and gets in a, a, a sheer diaphanous gown and yeah, Desert she, Island mood. Yeah, she, like she, with she, Wilson. Yeah, she she throws down uh, with the with the best of them. I mean, they're pretty hot scenes if you can get over the how disgusting they are. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed Macabre. I hadn't seen it prior to getting prepared for this episode, so that was mm. a, a nice surprise. Although. The very end, I found a little ridiculous where, for whatever reason, the head, like two years later, just suddenly, at, with no previous foreshadowing of any kind, just bites the blind dude. And you get this ridiculous, like, kind of post credit, like, freeze frame saying, We don't know why he died, but it remains a mystery to this day. It's like, Well, we just saw how he died. Like, the fucking head bit him. Like, why don't you explain that a, a little bit? Well, I was, uh, was kind of disappointed because a lot of uh, Lamberto. Bava's films are completely ridiculous. And, uh, mm. you know, and I'm like, this film actually has a pretty decent storyline. It's creepy. And and then I'm like, oh, okay, there you go. <laughs> right. The, the head just leaps off the pillow and bites the, bites the blind guy. But it was a, it's a really dark, fucked up story. But the one thing that sticks in my mind more than anything was the little girl Right, and, that and there, atrocious the, southern accent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but her dubbing, I have never heard anything that tops the, the dubbing of Bob in the Lucio Fulci films. He's been in a few others, too. But uh, uh, Bob in House by the Cemetery has some serious com- uh, competition with the uh, little girl from Macabre. Right, macabre. Macabre. <laughs> McCorn on the cob. Exactly. <laughs> but mm. she uh, she drowned. Uh, spoiler, there's a lot of kid <laughs> killing in this movie, and I'm always a fan of kids, kids wasting kids in movies. But uh, right off the bat, she she drowns her little brother. I forgot wh- why she drowned him, but it was fantastic. I was can't wonderful. remember either, but it, that's what Yeah, it, it, was, it was just like she was bored or something. She was a messed up little little kid and i i sort of enjoyed her storyline a little bit more than the head sex um you know it would have it would have been a an okay movie for me if it was just about that weird killer little girl but that's what's so much fun about italian horror is that everything is fair game necrophilia Mm. like infanticide you know incest whatever the case might be it's like you almost I wouldn't say you get numb to it, but it's like you just expect nothing but complete, total, over-the-top, like habitual line stepping. Every step, like if there's a line out there to be crossed, <laughs> they just <laughs> blunder right on past it every step of the way. And I think that's what keeps people coming back to these movies decades after the fact, because you never in a million years would see any of this shit in a horror movie made in Hollywood today. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, a, a Mexican movie. Sometimes will go pretty far. I, I watched a uh, Belzebuth re- recently. That's a new Mexican horror movie, and there's just like a wholesale slaughter of children <laughs> throughout the what entire. What those Coffin Joe movies film. y'all talked about recently? I've never seen any of the Coffin Joe movies, and I understand those are pretty goddamn good. Uh, yeah, we just did a we just did a podcast on the getting Dan. We need to do another podcast because there's a. Uh, we didn't go super deep in the Coffin Joe. Just yeah, we, sort we, of, we stuck uh, to the main, like the main Coffin Joe trilogy. Yeah, and even then, we were just so. Uh, I think we were actually hypnotized by Coffin Joe. He has a way. 
<laughs> to mesmerize uh, people. But uh, yeah, it's uh, what what's really interesting about it is there's a, a forty year span with the trilogy. Uh, the original was uh, the original film was nineteen sixty four. And at at midnight, I'll uh, steal your corpse. Uh, uh, your soul. Uh, take your soul, and the other one is uh, a, a corpse. Yeah. Uh, and then the uh, what's what's the name of the third one? But anyways, uh, it, it, between 1964 and 2008. So mm-hmm. the ones in 1964 were pretty fucked up, you know. And, oh yeah. Uh, by and by 1960s a, standards, they were. Oh yeah, they were disgusting. Like Herschel Gordon Lewis level, or not? Not with the gore. Gotcha. Uh, there was very, there was a little bit of gore, but it was mostly just a really sadistic. And then yeah. uh, in the '67 one, there's a decent amount of torture, and uh, there's this great color sequence he throws in during the movie. It's in hell, where it's just like ten minutes of the devil just poking topless ladies is it's great it's really good stuff but anyways the uh the one in from 2008 was fucking hard it, it was hard to watch there, it was, there was one of the goriest uh, nastiest films yeah. i've seen recently there is actual physical mutilation on screen like people getting their lips sewn uh together a guy being hung from like meat hooks that were like actually put into his flesh in in his back. Although even was, in the thirties, there were scenes of people getting their lips in together. I haven't seen this yet, but I was just looking at a list of pre-code horror films, and there's a movie from uh, 1933 called Murders in the Zoo, where a guy hmm. has his lips sewn shut because he kissed like the bad guy's wife, and then he gets fed to vicious animals. The whole movie's about this guy feeding people to animals that he doesn't like, but there's this <laughs> gif right here of this guy with stitches going across his mouth, holding, I was like, God damn, for 1933? That is like ruthless, but anyways. Wow. Oh, yeah, the, it's a, a fucking lady like actually getting her lips sewn up. It's horrifying, uh, James, and you know, I'm not. I'm not typically horrified very easily. <laughs> it, it was a, It was really, really hard to watch. But uh, it just goes to show me that uh, it was a really neat experience because uh, we got to see almost like what that public, how the the public in the '60s was would have reacted viscerally mm-hmm. to that that stuff because of what he was still holding that vibe, you know, all the way through. But it's I love Coffin Joe movies, and the, and the, it's kind of indicative of the kind of flicks we talk about, you know, on on our podcast. Yeah, well, I've been we, meaning to see them for years, and uh, but we will save that topic for another day because tonight it's yeah. all about celebrating Lamberto Bava. So Dan, what can you tell us about A Blade in the Dark from 1983, which is like his uh, his bi- I guess his big warm up prior to Demons? Because tonight, obviously, the big main event is the double feature of Demons and Demons Two, and he did a couple of movies under a pseudonym that that doesn't seem to be necessarily the films that he points to that he's most proud of, but he just did them for a gig. But Blade in the Dark seems like one of his stronger efforts.
Interesting. Uh, what are you working on now? This is a really solid uh, kind of giallo slasher. You know, it's about a uh, a film composer who is um, he's renting this uh, this uh, kind of cool little house, secluded house, um, is he's working on a film score, and his neighbors and everybody start people start dying uh, left and right in creative ways. Um, it's is a yeah. This is a really solid, solid movie. I thought good. Um, you know the the little weird soundtrack uh, kind of uh, graded on me uh, for after a little while. But um, other than that, I I really enjoyed it. And now, what's the name of the little kid who's in the opening bit when they're like everybody's laughing at him, saying that you're you're, you're oh, acting like that's a female? Bob. What, yeah. What's Bob's real name? Yeah, because Bob he's been in like House by the Cemetery, and I think he was in. It's a Gio, Giovanni uh, Frezza, which uh, I'm sure yeah. he's a lovely gentleman, but uh, as a <laughs> child. As a dubbed Italian child, I want to murder him every time yeah. he's on well, screen. Well, he's credited just as little blonde boy in film. But yeah, Giovanni Frezza, I've got his credits now. I mean, talking about like a, a great filmography, but The House by the Cemetery, Manhattan Baby, Blade the Dark, Demons. I mean, he's in like all these killer yep. fucking Italian horror films, and he's so young. I don't even know if he had any idea <laughs> like how, what a great opportunity this was. He's even in Warriors of the Wasteland, which is an NGC yeah. Castellari film. And I love it. They always he's like got, he's got a good part in that. He's he's kind of like a little kid. I think he's got a slingshot. Yeah, but they always find like yeah. like they always find like a high pitched girl to dub him with and things like that. I'm sure, I'm sure he was really annoyed. But he got to work with some of the best Italian filmmakers around. But anyway, so when, as soon as the movie opened, I saw him. I was like, all right, so uh, I'm in. And I like anytime you have movies within a movie and you get something like a little bit of the craft of filmmaking. I'm not saying this on mm-hmm. the level of Blowout or something like that, but it is cool just because music obviously is such an essential component of Italian horror. So just to get to kind of seek our teeth into the nuts and bolts was pretty cool. And of course. We've got um, slightly less socially sensitive uh, depictions of a transgender killer on the loose. Yeah, and yeah, I was thinking about that as uh, I was I was watching because that was a first time watch for me. And well, you know who the uh, killer was? Wasn't it the Lamberto's assistant director? Because he was the only person like skinny enough, like on hand that would like be <laughs> believable as a girl or something like that. It's a, it's a, it's Suave, uh, Michele uh, Suave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, okay, yeah, so it's a, the assistant for Lamberto Bava, because what I read on uh, IMDb was this, that for the role of the killer, Bava had a difficult time finding a man that could convincingly appear to be a woman when dressed as one. After many auditions, he turned to his assistant, Michelle Suave, and cast him in the role. And, you know, he only has to, like, speak for uh, a few seconds, so it's not necessarily the world's most demanding acting part. And I, like, I also like movies like uh, New York Ripper, where you have the killer doing, like, strange voices to kind of taunt mm. the people that they're hiding. I think it's, uh, it's uh, isn't it Suave doing that one, too? In, yeah, I, in New York Ripper? A, yeah, he is. Uh, he's the Kevin Bacon uh, <laughs> of Italian horror films. 
he's uh, been associated in one way or another with just about every single ta- Italian horror film. And the heat, I was just watching uh, another one of uh, Lamberto uh, Bava's films before we got on, and uh, it was the either the Killer Fish or the uh, is another one in from eighty four. And fucking Suave pops up again. I'm like, it's <laughs> everywhere. Uh, now, but he's a he's a really neat dude. But he, uh, we just we covered a lot of his films on our show, Four Brains One Movie, where we've talked about Cemetery Man. We've talked about the church. Uh, he's he's kind of like uh, the main the main dude, man. Gotcha. I like Suave. Now, some people have called attention to the fact that because Lamberto Bava was an assistant director on. Phenom- uh, sorry, not Phenomena, Tenebrae in 1982 for Dario Argento, mm-hmm. right. that this movie kind of borrows stylistically. From- do, y- do y'all see any common ground? It's been like yeah. five years since I've seen Tenebrae. So I, I, I have to admit, I need to revisit it to even make a fair comparison. Yeah, and there's a, there is a kill scene in uh, Blade in the Dark that's just top-notch. Uh, there's, oh, when the, uh, the girl's in the bathroom and gets stabbed through the hand and gets the bag over the head. That was oh, yeah. yeah. That's as hardcore as death and Italian horror gets. Oh, it, but it was, uh, it's just, if you analyze every shot and it's just, every shot was necessary and it worked and it was fucking intense. It reminded me a bit of The Godfather you know? when Luca Brasi, they stab him in the hand and they choke him from behind. Oh, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah. If you're about to choke somebody out, it helps if one of their hands is going to be pinned to the table so they can't <laughs> use it to defend themselves with. But of course, in this, as the body gets pulled away, the knife kind of finishes the job between like the two fingers and goes all the way out. And yeah, it was a particularly gruesome sequence. So for fans of just horrific violence, yeah, this movie definitely delivers on that front. Mm. And I, I just want to make sure that uh, we all know that uh, Bob Fritzy, <laughs> uh, who plays Bob in the House by the Cemetery, also plays the uh, young punk rock woman in Demons. Right, Dan? <laughs> Are you shitting me? Or <laughs> no, I am shitting. Yeah, yeah because I, I like, know he's in the back. Gotta, I remember yeah. at the very end. But I was going to say, like, I was like, is that is it possible? Well, yeah, but he, he still looks like a little boy at the very end of the play. No, yeah. you got to see the uh, <laughs> to see the picture of the girl from uh, the uh, punk rock girl from Demons. You remember the one it, that when they uh, like t- like the cocaine scraping cocaine off her nipple and yeah. things like that. Gotcha. Yeah, apparently the scenes with the cocaine got uh, got cut from a lot of different uh, versions of the movie. But since y'all bring up demons, this is kind of the main event of this podcast. 1985 yeah. Demons, Lamberto Bava's personal favorite, a movie that I think y'all have discussed in the past on one of y'all's two podcasts. But I feel like if you are into Italian horror, and you're talking about the 80s, like there's movies like Opera. And there's movies like Inferno, and there's movies like The Beyond. But I think mm-hmm. Demons is definitely one of the strongest horror movies of this period. Because for me, what makes it really special and what makes it kind of transcend your typical demons, a.k.a. zombies running amok scenario, it seems to be one of the best horror movies I've ever seen about the act of watching movies, about the act of watching horror movies and the way we behave when we're watching, how we respond. And it's probably got the coolest movie theater and horror movie history. So I feel like there's a lot going on in Demons that may or may not have been intentional, but it's there now. Here it is like, you know, 34 years later, and it makes it 
strangely, uh, I think. I think it really makes it, it stands alone in the horror genre because of all of those meta subcurrents going on in the flick. The preview you are about to watch is for a movie that is unlike any you have ever seen before. It is for a movie that goes beyond temporary fear to everlasting terror. It is a movie called Demons. Yes, the demons are coming, and they're coming for you. Warning, if you have the courage to see demons, sit near an exit. Otherwise, you might never get out. In your theater, who will survive the touch of the demons, and who will not? Demons. With music by Billy Idol, Motley Crue, The Adventures, Rick Springfield, and Saxon. This is no dream. This is happening right now. And it could be happening to you. Demons. They will make cemeteries their cathedrals. And the cities will be your tomb. Survive it, demons. Yeah, it's uh, uh, definitely uh, you know uh, a great like locked in a locked in a place, uh, mm-hmm. uh, like, trapped in a situation, a horror movie. But it is, it's just got all the all the right quantities of bonkers and the right quantities of gore and special effects and silliness. And, uh, there's, you know, none of those categories really take over. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, well, it's, well, it's like a nice, well-balanced Chianti. Yeah. Right. Great. Great. The thing (laughs) I love most about it is the, is the cast of characters that you have. Right. Uh, between like Tony the pimp and the blind guy and uh, Ingrid the usherette. You, it, there's just so many cool characters, all like you said, locked into this one place, um, getting chased and turning into mutants. It's, it's fantastic. Well, before we get too deep into it, Dan, real quick, if you have not seen it, give us the overall premise of it. Because I think for me, part of the fun of the premise is that the writers never at any point decide to explain why this is mm. going down. Like, we see what happens, but you keep expecting there to be an explanation at some point. And this is all happening because dot, dot, dot. And they're just like, <laughs> right. they're like fuck it. Right. No, we're just going to, it's just, this happened and you've experienced it, but we're not going to, we're not going to really go into the reasons why. So what, what is the premise of Demons? So uh, the movie starts with uh, our heroine. Uh, she's given a ticket to like a secret movie showing. There's, it's just a, a ticket. And this. who gives her the ticket? Uh, that would be Michele Suave in a, <laughs> in a cool silver half mask. He's everywhere. Yeah, he looks amazing. The mask is killer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so she grabs, uh, she grabs her buddy, and they go to this, this new uh, movie theater that opened up. And it's, it's got this cool vibe to it. And there's all these people with tickets um, showing up. And no one really knows what's going on. Like her friend keeps saying, this is a horror movie. I'm going to be pissed and all this stuff. So uh, eventually they start watching the, the flick and um, 
Pri- oh, sorry, prior, uh, Greta Goretta uh, gets uh, puts uh, the mask on. It's out yeah, in it's the like lobby. A, a, it's like a weird thing where there's like an installation, an art exhibit that's like part of the theater in addition yeah. to the screening room. And everybody's dressed like they're going to like an all-night Halloween party instead of just going to the cinema. <laughs> so it's just <laughs> everything's kind of dialed up to 11 for the screening. Right. So she, uh, the mask uh, cuts her on the face. And, uh, you know, they go in, they start watching the movie, and in the movie that they're watching, someone puts on a mask, it cuts them on the face. No shit! Yes. And then that person starts turning into a demon, and Goretta Goretta also starts turning into a demon. And shit just goes fucking wild from there. But what's cool is we get a ton of footage of this movie than a movie, and I know that this actually was originally going to be a Lucio Fulci movie, that they end up kind of scrapping. Wait, what? What? what are they, I'm seeing some secret signals come between y'all. What, what, <laughs> no, I was just giving Dan a thumbs up for that. That was a really good. Uh, that was. That was. <laughs> I am notoriously synapses. I am notoriously bad at synapses. Called it a synapses. <laughs> you finally become a real boy. That's where a synapses is when you're doing a synopsis and you can't remember anything. <laughs> Most of my synopsis are like. There was a guy, and he was he was like he going. Literally, he where literally like, just gives up <laughs> on the synopsis half the time, and he's like, "Yeah." So then uh, he's like, "Yeah, fuck it." He just throws it hell. Well, what's cool about this though <laughs> is that you really get to spend a lot of time with these characters before things get weird. I, I love how they withhold the demons till deep, deep, deep into the movie. So by the time things start to really get weird and the first demon emerges, right. you're really invested in a bunch of these little subplots. And I love how this whole place feels like this giant labyrinth with like everything's like blue or red and all these mysterious curtains and hidden alcoves and hidden passageways. Everybody's you know, copping a feel off to the side. And you just get the sense that there's going to be a lot of different room for the characters to maneuver once things start to really come unraveled. But you get a ton of screen time of the movie on the screen. And Mm -hmm. as you're watching, you're like, what is this? Because there's no plot or dialogue. It's just people watching a movie. And we're watching watching people watch a movie. And I feel like it's just, it's in a, whether, like I said, whether it's intentional or not, it's offering some interesting commentary on just the horror viewing experience and people's varied responses. Well, I like, uh, I like, Baba, because you can tell when he's, you know, it's almost like if Baba was a restaurateur, for example. Here's one of my lame analogies, Dan. <laughs> I love. Uh, it. He'd Ready? be like, we we need something. We need something on the menu with more pepperoni. You know, let's uh, let's just let's make a nice. Let's make a stromboli or something with the, lots of pepperoni. Just stuff it with pepperoni. And uh, then somebody's like, is this enough pepperoni? Be like, no, more pepperoni. I said, it's a fucking stromboli and more pepperoni. You know what I'm saying? So it's if that makes any sense, which it doesn't, each movie that he does, like Delirium, for example, it's like, tits, tits, we need more tits. <laughs> well, if you've got an actress like, was it Sabrina Salerno, who's in uh, Delirium, right. She's an actress who could have easily appeared in like Russ Meyer movies. Or sorry, it's uh, Serena Grandi who's like the really well-built one. But she's—I feel like if she had been on the scene 10, 15 years earlier, Russ Meyer would have discovered her and used her and just and completely fallen in love with her. So, but I, I don't want to jump the gun and not give yeah. uh, demons its due. So yeah, as Dan mentioned, well, once... uh, there was a, a purpose to this. Oh, I'll let, let it on. I thought yeah, you just wanted to talk about tits. I, got, I know we whenever I mentioned tits. 
It just runs <laughs> off the rails. But uh, but the idea behind it, if you look at each of his movies, he has his gimmick and his like a bushel of you know whatever the fuck he's throwing at you. And each each movie is like that. And with the demons movies, it's you get a lot of demons. That's that's the end of my explanation. But not initially. Initially, it's one demon, and she's in the theater. And if you get clawed, that's how you get infected. Not like we just have this giant right. outbreak initially. It, it's a slow mm. drip, and slowly but surely, more and more demons start appearing. But I think the demons just—I mean—they're essentially zombies, but they're fast mm. and they're smart and they look great. Like the 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 contact lenses, the glowing eyes, the claws. Demons are underutilized in horror. Zombie films are as, as, as tired a genre as you can think of, but what I like about mm. Italian zombie films is there always is an element of the supernatural. They're not sci-fi movies. I feel like a lot of American movies, it's more sci-fi. Like It's like there's some sort of virus that's been released and so on and so forth. But I like how the gates to hell and zombies overlap in the world of Italian horror. But now he's just like, no, fuck zombies. We're going to actually have some real deal demons invading. And I just feel like... They're an underutilized resource. Everybody's familiar with demons from like religious sources. Why not have more demons in horror? Because I'm just I'm sick to death of looking at zombies. So I, that's one of the big reasons mm. I like demons so much. <laughs> it just it feels very fresh compared to other tired genres. Yeah, like we just did a uh, we had you on our show and we did uh, we talked about uh, movies. Uh, demon movies and there wasn't one movie that actually included demon possession. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now with. Uh, you know, getting back to Baba, what what I was trying to explain with my Stromboli <laughs> analogy, which is a terrible analogy, by the way. I need to start taking notes on analogies before we <laughs> guest on podcast, Dan. Which is that? A, a, would that be a good idea? No, it's a horrible idea. Okay, so anyways, it's uh, your whole stick. Yeah, but like Russ Meyer, okay. Russ Meyer will make a movie, except for some of the early ones where it was more. Uh, more like the boobs were slowly being exposed, you know, but once the boobs were out, every movie is a different, you got a different storyline, but it's about boobs. It's about boobs. Oh, like so what pussy got kill kill is no nudity that's at the all. Only, yeah. That's the, the one exception. Yeah. And that's like know, one of his most famous. So I think, and also uh cherry herring Raquel does have nudity, but it's, there's a lot of action and stuff like that as well. So I, I think it's a okay, mistake. Then strike that, uh, strike that <laughs> reference. Yeah. Uh, my point with Baba is whatever he is making a movie about, it's got a lot of that shit in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Demons got a lot of demons. Delirium got a lot of boobs. He's director of excess, but excess uh, by what, whatever he's taken off of the menu. Okay. Now mm-hmm. then the analogy is coming around, Dan. <laughs> God. <laughs> or you could say you're beating this analogy to the point when there's no life left in that horse. Let's let that analogy go to the grave and die. Thanks. Never to be mentioned again. We'll leave the Stromboli elsewhere. Leave, leave the Stromboli yeah, in the dumpster and talk about all the, uh, all the cool stuff in this flick because – I, th- I think this is maybe just a, a, one of those giant treasure troves of like all sorts of interesting details to sink your teeth into. But what I love is that for like, most of the movie, we have this totally bizarre, inane subplot of these punk rockers driving around. And we're not quite sure how it's going to pay off, why it's going to pay off. But every once in a while, we cut away to these characters who are just – they're in their own movie. Now, Dan, you're a bit of a music buff. What do you think of the choices of music in this and in Demons 2? Because obviously there's, oh, it's, yeah. a, it's a time capsule of certain pop and punk and rock, et cetera, from the period. Yeah. I, you know, 
it, it, it's a fantastic soundtrack. I mean, you've got the 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 one that really got me going was the um, is it the cult is on the Demons Two soundtrack? Yeah, the, um, the rain. Is, yeah, uh, Smiths, The yeah. Cult, Dead Can Dance, and Art of Noise are all in the soundtrack for the second one. Right. And, and that, also, uh, and there's also Gene Loves Jezebel. <laughs> that's okay. a, that's a, just this odd group, uh, these two brothers. They, and uh, they were supposed to be brothers and lovers back in the 80s. And uh, it's very straight. Look, look those guys up. They're kooky. I remember rolling into a party once saying, I got a new, I got a new record <laughs> or new tape. And I threw down some Jim Love Jezebel. So I was having some flashbacks in, in the, uh, in episode two, but the first, but the first, uh, the first movie yeah. does, they are throwing down a little Rick Springfield. Yeah. Rick Springfield, Billy Idol. Uh, fucking Saxon, Saxon, Motley Crue. I love the Motley Crue like needle drop that they had. Um, and of course, you have Claudio Simonetti as the composer of the score as mm-hmm. well. So, yep. yeah, I think that's one of the things that really takes us to another level. Like we have, we're used to hearing great scores in these Italian horror films, but usually not quite as many needle drops. We have all these fantastic needle drops from the period, in addition to yeah. a kick-ass score. Well, it almost feels like uh, this was a big. Uh, uh, like a Hollywood production where they bring in, you know, all this sort of uh, promotional tie-in. You know, I think they knew that this movie, well, actually Demons 2 was a result of this being really popular. But uh, it was uh, the a marketing opportunity in a lot of ways. A lot of ways. But one thing I really love about Demons is... Every once in a while, both in the first and the second, we'll get these shots that are so atmospheric and so beautiful and in slow motion where you'll, it'll either be a stairwell or a hallway mm. where it's shrouded in darkness, light in the back, and we just get these silhouettes. And in this, the, the shot's particularly good where they're just coming up in slow motion, the eyes are glowing, and it's so fucking stylish and cool and horrifying. And I think the whole movie's worth watching just for that couple of seconds right there where it goes somewhere... That up to that time, I haven't seen horror movies go. I, 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 thank you. You're showing me something. Because I feel like, as much as I love horror, it can be very derivative and people are constantly uh, imitating their heroes. Mm-hmm. But Lumberto Bava manages to break some new ground here. Yeah, and it's crazy because those shots are, in some ways, just so simple. Like, you know, glowing eyes and, you know, walking down a hallway. But they're uh, definitely iconic and gives you. Gives you a gives you a chill as you're as you're watching it. All right. Well, since this movie stubbornly refuses to offer any plausible explanations as to why the movie on the screen, like obviously it's the prop that causes the the infestation. But what are y'all's theories, mm. fan theories, on the plot of this movie? Because I feel like there's a lot of room for the viewer to add their own ideas in terms of who's this man in the mask. Why is he infecting these people? Why are we Why are we watching a movie about the exact same thing that's about to happen in the audience? So, Brad, I'll let you go first. Explain the plot of Demons since the movie decides to withhold certain key bits of information that would make the story otherwise complete. I just think it... Uh, I'm not being a dick, but um, I swear... Uh, I go back to cocaine. <laughs> uh, a lot of people uh, back in the 80s 
would just uh, that it seems like they would just come up with crazy ideas for movies. And uh, I really seriously think that these guys are just sitting down, just penciling out things and then realizing like, oh, we can tie these things together. Mm. You know, we can have a mask in the movie. Well, originally it's going to be like Black Sabbath. It was going to be an anthology horror film. But as Mm -hmm. they started working on the various scenarios for the anthology, Lumberto fell in love with this idea of people watching the horror movie that basically starts to be reflected in the audience. So he just fleshed it out to a feature. But so originally that was kind of the the genesis. But but I'm asking more of those, like, given the story as is, fill in the gap so that the story actually makes sense. Like, what is the origin story of this man in the mask and what are his goals? Well, um... You know, I came to these movies, uh, be, like we were saying before, because we started to talk about uh, Michele Suave, um, specifically in in this reference, his movie The Church, which I think is Demons Three. No, it's a uh, or four. It, it a, yeah, it's a part. It was actually going to be part of the Demon series. Yeah, and then he didn't like the. Uh, he kind of went art artful i guess mm-hmm. and uh, didn't want to be tied in so much with right. the gimmickry so he kind of did his own thing yeah but to that effect you know with the whole kind of intermingling of everything i i sort of retconned uh this movie the the genesis of the the demon infection in the church is this it's like a uh, a place where the knights templar you know hundreds of years ago buried these demonologists and like satanists and stuff so my theory is that this theater is also over some type of uh cursed ground gotcha all right i like um, it you got me Ooh, i i like that i like that dan yeah. dan it's not our show but that's the observation of the show <laughs> 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 well, so as I was I, watching it, I just kept expecting some sort of information about who the guy in the mask was, what his goals were, where the mask came from, something, mm. just a little bit of like like two seconds, two sentences of exposition <laughs> to tie it all together, I, but they just either forgot or didn't care, but they just, they don't quite complete it. But I think that actually makes it kind of fun because it actually yeah. makes the audience participate a little bit and it, it raises questions and they start filling in. My feeling is it was a, uh, uh, seriously now. It was a bloodletting in order to uh, bring – if you if you look at Suave's character mm-hmm. and he was sort of uh, like guiding the process along. So it's like all these little bits and pieces were, were creating this alchemy, you know, to mesmerize these people, keep them in one place so they can sacrifice them, you know, mm. to, to the demon god. And probably, you know, with some sort of uh, magical, you know, uh, but, but, you know, uh, yeah. spell, you know, bring back the demon. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, what I was, so like, me, I was expecting like something that. like that. Like the man in the mask is like an agent working for them and he's basically like sacrificing them on the altar of this in order to bring someone back. But it's no, it's just it's he's starting an outbreak almost kind of for the fuck of it. And the movie ends with a almost kind of post-apocalyptic scenario with people on the run like we've seen in a million zombie films 
and we get some of the worst acting I've ever seen, but in a delightful way where the, like this van pulls up and the two survivors hop in. And then, of course, we get a, a like an, an MCU-level post-credit stinger where we see that <laughs> the, the, the girl of the movie has, in fact, been scratched. And so she transforms, and the little boy, y'all's favorite, Bob, blows her head off, and that, that, that's Fuck the end that of the guy. movie. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, when you when you get a chance, look, watch Demons again. Pause. Uh, I know this is asking everybody to do a lot of work, but I don't know how you do this. So watch. Okay, have get two TVs. Okay, or two uh, two laptops. Watch House by the. There's easier ways to do this. Watch House by the Cemetery. Pause it on Bob's face, the closest close up, and then pause it on the punk rock girl's face. From demons, mm-hmm. you can't tell me they aren't the same persons. Except oh. I think Bob actually does show up, you know, later, and he's actually young size. So there's something going on there that just that just ain't that just ain't right. But I did want to go back to the soundtrack real quick, and I want to and I want to say uh, no before I forget. I want to say one thing about demons too. Simon Boswell, who did the music for Demons 2, has put together a pretty solid goth or kind of light goth uh, soundtrack, which there aren't a lot of those. You know, we did one, uh, The uh, the Hunger, uh, Mm -hmm. where uh, we talked about The Hunger, which was the 80s, but I mean, Bowie was in it. And they had Bauhaus on the soundtrack, but here we was have... Was that an episode of Four Brains, One Movie, when we did The Hunger and Cat yes. People? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah we were doing fun. 80s double features. That was and, a good one. That was a good double feature. Yeah, that was so much fun. That was one of... Uh, I mean, Dan, I think you were actually pretty good on that show, even. I know. It's shocking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, a, that was a fun show. But, uh, the, but let me just read this soundtrack, okay? 
There's a few on here that are more poppy. Uh, like you have, uh, who the fuck is Pierce Turner? I don't know who that is. But anyways, uh, you got Smiths and Art of Noise. There's a little bit of a uh, little bit of poppiness. But Gene Loves Jezebel is uh, considered like pop goth. You have the Cult, uh, mm-hmm. Fields of Nephilim, Peter Murphy, Dead Can Dance, and Love and Rockets, which are an offshoot of Bauhaus. And, I mean, that's a really solid goth soundtrack. And there's not a lot of those, you know, from the 80s. So uh, there's there's a one movie that has 45 Grave in it, which is pretty great. But I feel like you could throw in the coolest coming. Halloween parties of all time and just play the soundtrack for Demons 1 and 2 and perfectly mm-hmm. set the tone for a phenomenal night. Right. But then you might resurrect that uh, demon god and it might uh, <laughs> destroy all of your... Your dog might become possessed. Absolutely. Well, what's fun about Demons 2 is that it kind of is a sequel, but not really because it's like the first movie never happened, but in a weird way it did because it feels like there's this TV show, and the TV show takes place in a world where the first demons might have happened because they're finding like the dead, decaying bodies of demons from long ago where if they bleed on them, that it brings them back to life. And then through that, this TV show, almost like Halloween 3, like this TV show spreads demons back into the world, quite literally ripping out the screen. But once again, I feel like it's almost as narratively incoherent as the first one in terms of not really explaining how this is going down mm-hmm. or why this is going down. And I love the very end, right when you think they're actually going to give you the big aha moment and explain like somebody's grand scheme, they just kind of smash all the TVs and don't really explain what the hell is happening. So <laughs> I love I love how both of these movies, which have, both, have the exact same four writers in both c- scenarios, just don't give a fuck about narrative <laughs> cohesion and just want emotion and intensity and great scenes. And I feel like the best horror movies always reflect the eras in which they're made in really stunning ways. And Demons 2, while I don't think it's as strong a movie, in a weird way reflects the period much better with all like the hard bodies and the much obsession better, with yeah. fitness and the style and the fashion. I feel like culturally Demons 2 is, holds up a mirror to society in a lot, in a lot of really fun ways. Well, it uh, uh, definitely is not... It, it's bor- it borders on it being a bad movie. How dare you? You know, to, to me. But, um, I think Demons is a great movie. So much fun. But the second one, to me, uh, there's just a few parts in it that uh, that really annoyed me. But there's a few awesome parts in it. Yeah. And it, the fact that uh, the uh, prequel, uh, you were mentioning, that, that was the first time I've heard someone say that it might be like a prequel. Well, no, you know? but actually, well, it depends upon the territory you're talking about because these movies were released in opposite order in some territories. So Demons 2 was actually the first one followed by Demons, which became Demons 2. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... He it, knows more about Demons than, than we do, Dan. But, not shocking. But I think you can watch them in either order and it works just fine. It, it doesn't really matter. Dan, come to my aid. Help, help me defend Demons 2 as a, as a worthwhile watch. Oh, no, it's, it's definitely fun. It, I, it is. Uh, it's not. It's, it's not a great, great movie like Demons is. It, it's basically is like a typical sequel. You know, you almost every sequel takes a step down. Demons Two definitely does, and it does have the, those parts that are kind of like 
you know, groaners, uh, the, the weird <laughs> little, yeah. uh, the weird little, uh, demon that pops out of the child being the number one for me. You That's get, my you least like favorite gooey. ingredient without a doubt yeah. where it well, I mean, starts to feel almost like the gate or like a gremlins movie or something like that. We're like, yep. what is this fucking thing? Cause you see one demon hatching out of a body in the first one, but it's much more monstrous, much more terrifying. This mm. is more like, Oh, let's go to the corner grocery store and buy like a hand puppet and have it chase this girl around. And yeah, it's, it's not, not the most intimidating, especially when the demons look so damn cool. All you need are those contact lenses and the claws. The demons look great. Why they introduced this stupid little puppet, that I, d- I don't understand. Can you guys see my uh, image right now on the screen? You, you, you look like I'm you're ready to do an impersonation of the little demon when he jumps up on a <laughs> plant table. He goes, <laughs> "There you go. That's that's all. I, that's all I got for impersonations." Which is. Uh, very useful on a pure audio show to explain to people what you just did for those people who are not on the conversation. You got to watch Demons 2 and you got to watch the little rubber demon jump up on the table. Yep, Bradley just did it. It was perfect. Basically, somebody just like gets behind a little baby demon and just puts him up on the table and like wiggles him a little bit. Like, well, this film has one major credit to its name that it is actually the film debut of young Aja Argento. Mm. Obviously, is the daughter of Dario Argento and appeared in many of his movies and went on to direct a handful of movies on her own. And she's, I guess, in her mid forties now and has a pretty impressive filmography in her own right. But she's got some chops. I mean, she gets a lot of screen time in this. And yeah, if you're going to get your start somewhere, getting your start in Demons 2 is is as good a place to start as any. Yeah, and I I thought she had a nice um, kind of emotional scene when she was uh, Mm -hmm. in the car, you know, and and she sees her her father and the the other people who are defending the building uh, being slaughtered by the demons and whatnot. I I thought she was great. I think she was the best... Seriously, she was the best actor in the in the movie. <laughs> I uh, disagree. I think Bobby Rhodes, who returns from the first movie, he is the best or best performer. And it's different, same actor but different character. Yeah. Instead of being the pimp, he's now like a fitness guru who yeah. seems to have been waiting his entire life for a demon infestation to take place because <laughs> he rises to the challenge and becomes like a natural born leader. He's like helping people keep the morale high, helping them make weapons, yep. organizing, like, escape attempts. Suddenly, he, like, he, he blooms and becomes, right. like, Captain America. He loves well, building but, barriers, man. He, in both movies, he's like, grab the chairs, grab the seats, build a barrier. It's, he knows what's up. Absolutely. It makes, it makes sense, though, that it was a prequel because I was thinking, like, how could he be a pimp and now he's working at a gym, you know? I, and, I, I think but, it's one of those things where there's almost no connective tissue between the two movies apart yeah. from the name, but they are like, it's a weird thing where, like Evil Dead 2 even did this a bit, where it's a sequel, but it's not a sequel because it kind of starts over. I feel mm-hmm. like in the 80s, a lot of times sequels, they would just kind of disregard the first one, but make a movie that's like in the spirit of the first one. Like They weren't yep. really that preoccupied with continuity. Well, I think he may have met his uh, bevy of ladies uh, while he was uh, doing his gym work. I mean, those scenes are amazing because these are all like a bunch of fitness freaks and some of them are jacked as hell. When the demons invade, they're not like, ooh, and they, they don't all immediately run. They're picking up like dumbbells and they're picking up barbells <laughs> and hurling them. I was like, all right, yeah, fuck you. Yeah. Like, I mean, unless they scratch you, 
they're not that scary. So mm. why not throw a bunch of weights and crush their face and smash them and so on and so forth? Like it's like you have a small army of really powerful, strong people. I like how the the cast in this is not a bunch of you know helpless victims. They actually are, are ready to throw down in a lot of ways. Well, it right. was a, and this was made during the height of the uh, fitness fashion craze. Uh, like with the whole flash dance thing yeah, where they were getting and, physical and the fitness fashion in this was, is fucking hardcore. Well, I was just wow. about ready to do a Bradley J. Cornish fashion confession. Oh, late, late on us during the flash dance craze. I like, I was one of those kids where I'd make my own clothes cause I was cooler than what the stores can sell me. So I took a, uh, a sweatshirt and I cut the neck off. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> the neck would like slide. Shit. It would slide and expose my shoulder, and uh, I would just like say, "Yeah, I got the." Sh-. I looked over and while I was dancing, I said, "I could work this." And then my <laughs> friend said, "Dude, you look like you're, uh, the, you look like Jennifer Beals." Or you look like you're like one of the guys from William Friedkin's Cruisin'. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, if I was, you would have done. You would have been. You would have been very successful. I would have been getting the job done. But uh, absolutely, been yeah, a, a but, dude uh, magnet. Yeah. So, anyways, that's my uh, that's my fashion confession. I apologize for that, you guys. Well, I'm, uh, but I was wearing my new romantic boots. At the I don't stand. think anybody oh, yeah. who yeah. was alive nice. in the '80s is in any position to judge when it comes to '80s fashion because it was just the decade of the most garish, tacky, just over the top fashion sensibilities imaginable. Like I had my head shaved on one side and long bangs going down to a point on the other. I would <laughs> fuck yeah. I would bleach my blue jean jackets like arm coat totally white just to make it look a little different from the rest. And I was like wearing skater pants that looked like big ass parachutes that would like roll up real tight around the ankles. I mean, it was everything was over the top. Like when you watch '80s movies now, you're like, it just it seemed normal at the time, but it just was so strange. Yeah, Dan, you yeah, had a big fro back then, didn't you? What's that? Didn't you have a big oh, yeah. throw back then? I had I well that was more like the nineties. I, I but like the eighties, I I don't I don't even remember having a style in the eighties <laughs> other than like little short My style is short art of fighting and, without fighting. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, but, you you almost just did an impersonation of the little demon from Demons 2 right then. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was but, fantastic. But getting back to Demons 2. I can't remember, are there any shots of Bobby Rhodes after the demons basically take him down by grabbing his junk? I feel like he's kicking all this ass, he's tearing <laughs> demons apart, and suddenly somebody just reaches up between his legs and r- grabs around his sweatpants and just grabs his tackle, tackle box and yanks him down. But is that the end of Bobby Rhodes' character in this flick? I think so. Well, what a sad, does he come, way Does to he go. come back as a demon, Bradley? I, mean, I just I watched it remember. like two days ago, but I can't remember. Yeah. But I, I do know it's, it's one of those movies where I can't. The really the only things I remember are the things that make me really angry <laughs> about the movie. Now but, the original ending of this movie was going to have the girl who's pregnant giving birth to like a demon baby, but they decided mm-hmm. that would be too dark. What do y'all think? Would the would the movie have uh, been more interesting if they'd stuck to their stuck to their guns? And because later on in movies like the remake of Dawn of the Dead, you have like the, the zombie baby being born and things like that. But that that was the original plan was to have the girl give birth to a demon, have it claw its way out of her. Dan, wasn't there a movie we watched recently? Where there was a uh, pregnant lady. Yes. What, what in, was the name of that? 
and it was uh and the baby ends up uh she gives birth to the baby and they end up like sack uh, killing the baby or something like that because well, in that one the baby was intelligent uh no that's uh you're thinking of demon seed yeah no no no, no. The, the where they're at the end they're like riding a bus and she gets off at the bus stop and the like the baby can communicate telepathically with her oh yeah I, I know that you're thinking of baby blood Yes, that's what I I'm fucking thinking. love baby blood. That's great. But the uh but it, you know, if you're going to Chekhov's gun like right at the be- beginning of the movie in a horror film, a pregnant mm-hmm. lady, you know that baby's going to get fucked up at some point in time or, or it's going to come out or, or fuck up the mother. Yeah, one 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 or the other. But yeah, you can't yeah, tease so, that and not take advantage of it. Absolutely yep. not. And uh just one of the many reasons why uh, the, the film that made me angry. Fair enough. Well, what can we say about the rest of Lamberto Bava's career? Because I only saw a few clips from Delirium on MrSkin.com. The most interesting part was the bad guys coming after the girl with the rock and bod with a knife, and he gets dispatched when somebody with a rifle shoots him in the dick. Like I think Lamberto Bava, he's got a lot of necrophilia in his movies, (laughs) and a lot of people being taken out by either being grabbed by or shot in their, their equipment. But uh, is Delirium worth a look? It seemed like one or both of y'all w- 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 weren't too high on it. I actually tweeted, now watching. You know, I do that when I watch a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I do it mostly uh, as an alibi. <laughs> <laughs> so that way if I get caught doing crimes, I can say, hey, I tweeted <laughs> that I was watching this movie. <laughs> you know, but... Uh, I was I tweeted it, and uh, I said, "Now watching Delirium." Hey, here's some cool pictures. Mm-hmm. And then, like, forty five minutes later, after I watched twenty minutes of Delirium, and then fast forwarded through everything else, and then it was so bad, I even fast forwarded <laughs> through the nudity. Well, and there's a lot of there's, yeah, there's a, lot a decent of, amount. MrSkin.com has let's yeah. see how many clips from the movie, and they don't always have all the scenes, but it's got four big scenes: one with Trien Trien Mickelson, one uh, two with Serena Grandi, and one with Sabrina Salerno. Sabrina Salerno is the one who gets taken out by the uh, the swarm of bees. And I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Voluptuous Well Built Woman, and they all mm-hmm. definitely are packing heat on that front. So I enjoy well, the a, clips. I'm but, a massive fan of uh, uh, Daria Nicolodi and I'll watch anything that she's in, mm-hmm. but I almost feel like she was, uh, uh, she was, uh, like underutilized and wasted in this movie. Cause she's so talented. I, I really like her a lot. And, uh, she makes, you know, some of the Argento films, actually she, she wrote Suspiria. Mm-hmm. Well, here's you know, a, here's so. a great synopsis for Delirium on MitchellSkin.com. It says, several porn stars get scattered, smothered, sliced, and diced a la Waffle House hash browns in Delirium, 1987, an Italian softcore slasher flick that features buns and blood galore, not to mention repeated close-ups of star Serena Grandi's Mega Grandi Tetons, Mamma Mia. <laughs> That's the first <laughs> sentence of the review. This just gives them the hash browns comment. Gives more credence to my restaurant Stromboli thing. <laughs> and it's all coming together now because um, I hated that movie. I really, I, it was the only one of Lumberto Bava's movies that I actually could say I hated. Because it seems like but, after uh, Delirium moving forward, 
it's a lot of TV movies. You have the yeah. occasional movie that's still made for the theater, but you basically have shitloads of TV shows from that point on. But it seems like around Demons, 1985, he was at the top of his game, had a big hit on his hands. Mm-hmm. What is y'all's knowledge of the second part of his career? Was that just a sad reality where the Italian film industry was starting to kind of contract and starting to change? Because obviously around the same time, we see even guys like Dario Argento struggling to figure out what's going to come next. So it seems like a lot of Italian filmmakers who are in the horror genre struggled in the late 80s, early 90s to kind of figure out what their place was. And of course, Lucio Fulci outright died around that time as well. So we're starting Mm -hmm. to see the end of the great golden age of Italian horror. Well, I think they were so dependent on... Uh, the uh, Italians, you know, obviously, but uh, uh, they were. So, it was so tied in with uh, uh, what the Italians wanted, and even uh, in uh, the series that Bava did, uh, and it was the uh, uh, television series uh, Brevito Giallo, and that series actually had some pretty good movies. In it, uh, there's Graveyard Disturbance, Until Death, The Ogre, and Dennis the Vampire. And The Ogre is actually pretty good. And The Ogre was considered uh, D- Demons 4. Okay. Oh, okay. It, and, uh, but the thing is, they only did the show for, actually, uh, I don't know if it was one season or they did it over a couple seasons, but they stopped doing it because it wasn't very popular. Gotcha. Mm. You know, so it's like even the Italians. So maybe the have maybe had, enough. had enough. Like, what? Well, if you look at, I mean, the screenwriter for Blade in the Dark, I uh, mentioned before, um, Dardano Sacchetti. I mean, the guy wrote ninety six movies, and like from the mid seventies to like the mid eighties, he's cranking out three or four movies a year. And I guess if you're like in the volume business, you do run the risk of kind of poisoning the well and just burning people out by a glut of subpar product. I mean, admittedly, you have movies in the mix like The Beyond and The House by the Cemetery and The New York Ripper and all these extraordinary movies that he was writing. But a lot of these other movies are not on that level. So maybe it's just one of the things where just too much interchangeable, inexpensive product. I don't know, but it's something I would like to learn more about, like what brought this golden age to the end? Because it seems like starting with Mario Bava with um, uh, Black Sabbath, not Black Sabbath, what, what the hell is the one he made in 1960? We, we talked about it. Yeah, Black Sunday. Starting with Black Sunday up through the mid-80s. It's like a 25-year Golden Age that's so extraordinary with so many remarkable movies. And I guess maybe it's just the sad reality is all good things must come to an end. So, but at least yeah. Lombardo Bava got to make his mark. You know, it's funny. It, it reminds me of a, of a topic we've talked about before, and that's fantasy movies. Uh, you know, you had such a, a great run, uh, especially during the 80s, where you couldn't get away from, uh, you know, a, even the bad ones were good. You know, you, you just loved them all. And then all of a sudden, for one reason or another, you, you couldn't like in the '90s. You could barely buy uh, buy a good fantasy, uh, you know, if, if you tried. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, with it's, fa- it's, fantasy, the it's all gone into the world of fiction. Like 21st century fantasy mm. has been this really rich, dynamic period with so many great writers. But I did a video about the the fantasy genre in the '80s and my favorite movies, and it's unimaginable how many movies starred bodybuilders 
with like their ass cheeks exposed, running around in leather, <laughs> swinging, like wearing headbands, having the time mm. of their lives. It was it was so much fun. And, <laughs> but I guess by the '90s, suddenly being like super chocolatey tan and wearing like your 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 assless chaps, it just you started to look like ridiculous. As opposed to in the '80s, you just you fit right in there because that was just it just seemed normal in the '80s. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then the uh, the film got a little bit better, and the resolution got better, and then you saw them pimples on the butts. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and it's just not uh, – without that sort of, like, 70s, you know, kind of, like, fuzzy Emmanuel movie glow on everything, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't – it just doesn't look as, uh, as feasty. Right. <laughs> well, as we start to get toward the end of this episode, in that it is October uh, and people are looking for cool horror flicks to watch for Halloween, Dan, I'm going to let you go first. Throw out anywhere from three to five of your favorite Italian horror films, not the ones necessarily for like they're like the true obscure connoisseurs, people who I feel like there are a lot of people who have never really done the deep dive into Italian horror, mm. but what for you are the essentials in this 25 year golden age that are like the great, the, I mean, I guess what. Maybe the best way to phrase this, what are the Italian horror films that made you a fan of Italian horror? Well, you know, like I was saying, we I really only have gotten into Italian horror in the last uh, couple of years, mostly uh, from our show. And it is such a deep, you know, interwoven, crazy world. It's, it's hard to keep track of everybody. And, and in a lot, with a lot of genres, you know, once you watch maybe five, six or seven movies, maybe you you have a good feel for like a time or a period. Um, Italian horror seems to just be a never ending uh, well, but you know, it is, some, it is bottomless. There are, yeah. Cause every successful film breeds like a hundred imitation films and unofficial sequels. So you're like, Oh my God, like fuck. Like, okay. Like, sometimes you don't even know where to start. Yeah. But you know, um, the first one that pops into my mind is stage fright. Uh, you know, I uh, love Michele Suave, and that is definitely my favorite movie of his. I could watch that over and over. Um, I recently, uh, for the first time, watched opera. Um, I love opera. Yeah, that's my that, favorite Argento. Yeah, that mm-hmm. might be my favorite Argento uh, film. But, I mean, that's I think it's peak Argento one. in terms of production value, elaborate scares, and so on and so forth. He's really firing on all cylinders by that point. Yeah, but, you know, he he's a guy who you almost can't go wrong with, even – even the movies of his that I like the least, like I didn't care for Phenomena that much. It's still a really good movie. You well, know you got to tread lightly once you get into the late '90s, early 2000s. You'll, you'll find some stinkers in there. But if you're, oh, if you're yeah, watching yeah. the That's, '70s and '80s, you're, you're going to yeah. do you're going to do yeah. Let's fun. let's not talk about the what is it, the Dracula 3D or or you know. Although Dracula 3D's got some it's got some boobies, so it's, <laughs> yeah. Stop um, it. But uh, you know <laughs> any. Um, like we were talking with Fulci, um, uh, the, the zombie, zombie two, zombie or whatever number you want to give to it. It's another one I just recently watched. Um, and then you you can go back to the, uh, the master. Uh, I recently watched, uh, whip in the cord by Mario Bava. And that's a, a really crazy, uh, almost masochistic yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like film. one of the earliest yeah. snm movies and christopher yeah. lee going all out and yeah it, it, sometimes it's under the title the whip in the body but it's a really obscure, oh that's yeah sorry whip in the yeah body. And, but it's a really obscure mario bava but yeah mario bava i think gets overshadowed uh, overshadowed sometimes unfairly because also he just dabbled in so many other genres like danger diabolic it's not a harmony of it all it's like this like what if james bond was a bad guy who just steals shit to 
impress his hot girlfriend. Like that's what, like, basically what Danger Diabolic is. So he did so many other things, whereas Argento and Fulci, for the most part, remained in the heart. I mean, Fulci has like the occasional like acid western, and he's got some mm. of his early like just truly bizarre. I mean, Fulci in the early early mid sixties was quite a different guy, but I guess. Argento and Fulci are famous for the horror, whereas Bava definitely was unafraid to dabble in some in some other worlds. But man, I I love all of them. I mean, mm. I guess my favorite Bava might be Black Sunday. We talked about last year, but I, I really enjoyed that Fulci. For me, it's all about the Beyond. The Beyond just takes me to that special place. But I really like um, what's the one that Fulci made like in eighty or eighty one. It's got a bunch of it's got a bunch of different names. That is released under, but it's another. Hang on one sec. I'm looking at my Fulci right House now. House by the Cemetery. That same period. It is City of the Living Dead, 1980. Right. That. Oh one, yeah. That I, I just re- watched that for the first time too. That that was really good. Yeah, that's as apocalyptic as wild as it gets. And New York Ripper obviously is extraordinary as well. But mm-hmm. Mr. Cornish, what are you? What are some of your personal faves when you're not acting out scenes from Murder Rock? What are, <laughs> what are your your favorite Italian horror films? Well, I like the. I am not a huge giallo, uh, uh, you know, lover. There's some. Uh, I, the giallos that I do like are the rougher, uh, the ones that are a little rougher. But uh, that sounds dirty. I don't mean it like that. I mean <laughs> like some uh, of them are legitimately little, rough. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little grime, a little grimier. Like blood and black uh, lace is very classy, but as you get into the seventies mm. and eighties, the giallo starts to get a little more depraved. Yeah, well, there's like giallo in Venice, which is royally fucked up. You know, that's super fucked up. Mm. Uh, and you know, even uh, New York Ripper is really fucked up. You know, it's like, uh, but those things, it, it's like uh, when you get to that level, it brings in more horror, you know, than fashion, you know. And I think a lot of Giallo films that we've watched, Dan, were more on the on the fashion side. Right. Uh, there was like all the colors of the dark, you know, stuff like that, which mm-hmm. I don't like that, that those. I mean, I bitched about that when we watched it. But uh, again, you know, like uh, some of the grimier, more low budget stuff like uh, Anthropophagus. I uh, love Anthropophagus. Mm-hmm. Have you have you seen that one? I've not. I've never even heard of that one. Uh, it's it's great. It's uh, basically uh, uh, just uh, it's got Georgie Eastman in it. And uh, it's a Joe D'Amato film. Oh, nice. I love Joe D'Amato. Yeah, yeah. So he uh, – so uh, Joe D'Amato is a good example of, you know, getting out of the pop sphere, you know, and it's like – like I'm sure in Italy, like kids would be like, I don't I don't watch those uh, pussy, you know, uh, Dario Argento movies. We watch Joe D'Amato or something like that, you know, which <laughs> – they're 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 a little bit nastier, and then uh, you know, Deep Red uh, from Argento. Profondo uh, Rotto. Yeah, a couple a couple <laughs> of uh, you know, Tenebrae. I'm a big fan of uh, Tenebrae, uh, and I think uh, the Fulci stuff. I just watched Don't Torture a Duckling. That's early for the, fr- early. For the like first time. It's early time. in its horror period, and it's damn good. Oh, it's fucking great! I love, I, I love Don't Don't Torture a Duckling. It yeah, was re- a movie I, with like a legit was, perverted scene where this little boy is getting quizzed yeah, about his sexual history. Oh yeah, <laughs> by this oh, yeah, but, beautiful naked woman. Oh, it's a, you know what? 
I imagine I could seriously imagine that that little boy was James Hancock <laughs> serving serving the food as to them. I would have uh, been curious to have those experiences. I, actually, I, I was always um, perfectly happy to interact with girls my own age, from like fourth grade onward. And see, so, yeah, I, I was at a very fast school with a lot of with a lot of uh, a lot of activities. So yeah, we we didn't have to go into <laughs> strange territory. A lot, a lot of kissing games, a lot of heavy petting, and all that good stuff. But yeah, but that scene is uh, is is hotty toddy. God Almighty. Well, what do you guys got coming up on your show over the next few weeks that y'all are excited about? Well, uh, Dan. Oh, no. <laughs> you can well, make me remember the movies we were supposed to well, watch. Wait, actually, we have something very exciting. Well, Dan, well, Dan says, very exciting for November. And uh, it is, dec- uh, we're calling it Decades of Cronenberg. Nice. Yeah. And for we're going to do uh, – typically we do a show every two weeks with Four Brains, One Movie, but we're going to do a show every week in November. And each week we're going to talk about uh, 70s Cron- – we'll talk a little bit about Cronenberg overall, but uh, 70s Cronenberg and then 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And uh, I'm – you know, I'm I'm slap happy with the polls, Dan. So <laughs> I'm gonna do. I'm. It's not gonna determine the movies that we talk about, like we do on Twenty Six Movies from Hell. Like we have, uh, we have Stephanie Crawford coming up this week. We're gonna be talking to her about uh, the movies that start with the letter F, mm-hmm. and Twenty Six Movies from Hell from uh, up until I think in or I think it's episode in. This series are going to be nothing but horror movies. So we're talking about four horror movies and Funhouse won that one. That's so right. we're going to be talking about Toby Hooper's Funhouse. But the uh, the thing in November I'm super excited about with uh, Cronenberg because we'll get to go deep on Cronenberg. And uh, it's going to be uh, the four guys um, from Four Brains, one movie, uh, me, Dan, Andrew Hawkins, which Hawkins, by the way, uh, he he just said, uh, "Did you see he had lunch? Uh, he had drinks with Bill Scurry." Oh, nice! Very cool. Yeah, yeah he was in Amsterdam and uh, threw down with uh, Bill Scurry. Uh, so uh, as far and then Scurry is also seeing you in person as well, Dan Poland. Yes, he has last so, year. <laughs> At uh, at our epic uh, podcasters meetup, I-, I love how indignant Bradley always gets about the idea that Dan has met people in the flesh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a. Like, I want to touch his very soft. I, I you know I will. You know what I'm going to do when I see Dan? I'm going to uh, gently take your hand in mine and and give it a kiss. I look like, forward to it. You are a fair maiden. Well, I think Bradley, you need to schedule a time to come to New York, and we can hang out at Wrong Real headquarters, and the three of us can record in the flesh. Yeah, so we have uh, uh, a lot to look forward to, and we're doing a lot of great new shows. And right now, uh, if you want to, if you go to our Twitter page for 26 Movies from Hell, which is at 26MFHpod, uh, then you could vote for... And I'm going to say it, Dan, because I I'm, I guess I'm supposed to be non-biased, but I really want Galaxy of Terror to, <laughs> to win the G episode. I, the gate is on there, but the gate really, uh, you know, that's like that one fucking Ralph Baxi movie <laughs> <laughs> that you had us put in there. And, and people are complaining 
that Fire and Ice really isn't a movie from hell. Come you know, on. Uh, the gate. It depends. I mean, it's got monsters and witches and spellcraft and stuff like that. So it's, I mean, Thank talk you. about butt cheeks. <laughs> I mean, it yeah, was, it's got uh, insanely beautiful girls. I, I like Fire and Ice. So I think, yeah, whatever bullshit explanation you need to come up with to justify being in there, I think Fire and Ice totally fits. But the gate is kind of like, it's a little family friendly. Yeah, it's, family it's a horror movie for little kids. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but it's such a cool little movie. Yeah, it's 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 strangely effective. Yeah. So, but Galaxy of Terror, oh my God. Yeah, there was a there's a giant assault on some poor lady from like a a drippy slug monster. It's almost like tentacle porn. I've never seen Galaxy of Terror, but you're definitely piquing my interest. I'm looking at the poster right now, and it looks like like a, a, an old cover from like heavy metal, like in the late late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. And I see it's got it's got Robert England in it. Yeah, Robert England has a small Sid Haig. Has, very nice. Uh, May he rest in peace. Uh, Sid Haig is great in this, and uh, yeah. What what's that? I said, of course he is. Oh, I thought you were giving shit to Sid, Sid Haig. No, I'm kidding. I'm fucking with you. Well, guys, it's always a pleasure and a privilege recording with you, and I appreciate you coming back for that. I think this is a, should be a regular tradition where we talk about strange, bizarre movies uh, for Halloween every year. But we hope you all have enjoyed like the show. Definitely hunt down some of these flicks. As we've been alluding to, it's like I've been watching Italian horror movies off and on pretty aggressively for a while now, and I still feel like I've barely scratched the surface. There's, yeah. It's always like, oh, my God, there's like – this is another director who's got a hundred movies to his name. I guess I got to start <laughs> chipping away at those, etc. But uh, it's always a fun topic, and it's uh, always a pleasure recording with you guys. But if you enjoyed this show, please remember to rate the podcast, subscribe, leave a comment, all that good stuff. If you want to talk, best place to find me is always on Twitter at Colbrax. And if you want more content, I've been cranking out a ton of videos lately on my Geeking with James Hancock YouTube channel, a lot of TV and film reviews. And if you want to buy some wrong real swag there's a link in the show notes below for wrong real t-shirts coffee mugs Ooh, all that nice. good stuff so we hope you all have enjoyed the show thanks so much for listening but more importantly as always onwards and upwards it ain't like it used to be but uh, it'll do you know how to whistle don't you steve you just put your lips together and blow